This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. in this volatile, rapidly burning uh, 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 security Bitcoin. Uh, interesting trade in that. Uh, Stephen Gandel joins us right now. He's an equity markets columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, as well as, as, well as Julie Verhage, uh, who was here with us yesterday from Bloomberg News. Uh, Stephen, let me start with you. The trade in this uh, today was uh, dynamic. Yeah. No, when we uh, – when – when most of us woke up, it was already up more than a thousand points on the day, right? We've been we've been counting how many days it takes to go up a thousand points. Uh, here was less than a day, and now now it's down a little bit for the day. So uh, I don't know what you call that, but up thousand swing, down thousand swing. What do you call that? Volatile. <laughs> do you call it crazy? Do you call it a bubble? What do we call it? I mean, I think at this point, pretty much anyone that's in it does think it's some sort of bubble, but the dumbest thing you can do in a bubble is try to call the top and short it, right? So just no one wants to sort of get out at this point. I would say there's probably a bit of profit-taking at this point, right? If you got in earlier this year when it was around, what, 1,000, why not take some profit right here? It's been up 15% today at its high. It's been down more than 2% at its low. So that's, what, a 17 18% swing here today. Mm-hmm. How do we liken... Bitcoin. Does it remind us of any other asset class that we've played around with in the last, I don't know, couple of decades? Tulips. <laughs> well, tulips well, in the 17th also, century. This is hard. Some people say it's a currency. Some people say it's some sort of equity. I think of it more as an equity because currencies aren't supposed to be this volatile. But mm-hmm. that's sort of this big debate, especially if people sell and it's going to be taxed, right? Is it taxed as capital gains or what? Right. You know, a lot of people say that you can't compare it to equities because this is a new technology that changed the paradigm. But that's not really how we usually uh, describe currencies. And so if what's being priced in is what's driving the stock, or driving stock, see, I said it. There we go. What's driving Bitcoin. What would is Freud the, say? No, just Is kidding. the <laughs> assumption that of growth, then then you can think of it more like a like Well, a I mean, we've, we've seen Latin American currencies trade like this. We've occasionally seen a, a, a Asian t- currencies trade like this. Someone who's seen everything is Joseph Stieglitz, and he was on Bloomberg Today, at television today, talking about Bitcoin. Listen to what, uh, a well-respected economist, listen to what he had to say about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is uh, successful only because of its potential for circumvention, uh, lack of oversight. So it seems to me it ought to be outlawed. Uh, It doesn't serve any socially useful function. So, Julie, is that true? I mean, he apparently thinks it's true. I think there's other people that that, that think think it's true as well. But... I mean, I think it's hard to say at this point. Um, there's still a lot of questions surrounding Bitcoin around the regulation that it's going to see. And I think until a lot of those answers are solved, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to the price. See, I, I, was, I was on Bloomberg TV talk. I had to respond to that same quote today at once. And I got to think about that, that like tulips in the 17th century, if you don't know about the tul- what happened with tulips, you don't understand what really happened with the mania around it. And, and the, the tulip that fetched the greatest price of all, and I'll have to look up what it was called, but it was a particular tulip bulb, they had an expression of a single streak of white going from the base of the bulb to the top. It wasn't a parrot tulip. It had straight, which is to say the frilly ones at the, at the top of the, of the flower, but it had straight petals with a, with a shock of white going in it. It was such a rare genetic de- deformity that it was thought that 
this, the value of this tulip bulb and the tulips themselves would be so fantastic that it was worth this great value. I think you have to understand that there is some functionality for Bitcoin, that there is an advantage to a currency that can, that can cross borders without a charge, that can move from one hand to the other without so many middlemen, that can process transactions and record the processing of those transactions. That, that is the, the underlying middleman. value. Mm-hmm. I mean, and cut out the middleman. Think about the the process. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think there's some benefit, and that's what people are 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 betting on that this cash this uh, kind of feeless uh, transaction. But I think there's negatives too. I mean, you don't have a central bank backing it. You don't have uh, right now. You don't have strong regulations around it. You don't have a uh, you have a you have some protection. You don't have total protection that your dollars that you or your bitcoins that you put in in whatever digital wallet you put it in will still be there. So I think I think yeah, there's some positive, but there's some negatives, and I don't think the market's factoring the the, the latter in yet. And we have to remember, there's not that many places that you can trade it at this point either. Coinbase is one of the main ones, and they're having eight times the sort of volume. There's a bunch of people tweeting at them that they're having issues if they're trying to buy or sell Bitcoin at this point. So any place that does actually trade it is having a hard time keeping up, and that could also cause issues in the future and sort of force regulators to and there's a volatile. Sorry, and there, there's a there's a cost to the volatility, right? Because like, so the, so I saw a video of someone buying a Subway sub uh, <laughs> with Bitcoin, and it was a three year old video, and they paid uh, 0.4 of a Bitcoin, and the most recent comment was, ha ha ha, you just paid five thousand dollars for your Subway sandwich, right? So the, there's a cost of using it that's not necessarily kind of there, the mass deflation of it, the fact that the price keeps going up and people aren't going to, are hoarding these things. Does it ultimately become more valid, if you will, if there's one central platform? I would think so. If there's one like designated platform, like say a central bank came out and said like, this is the established and like digital currency, then I would think there's more value added to that and people would feel more comfortable using it. And there would obviously be regulation around it then. But, um, but what backs it ultimately? Right. Right now, nothing, really. Yeah, no. I, but I think, you know, it's not going in that way. The, the weird thing about how the price keeps going up is they've had these splits, effectively, these forks, um, and also all these coins and new currencies. So it's not going the way towards central. It's going the way towards more and more of these things. So you'd think the more supply of these cryptocurrencies would, would uh, lower the price, but it isn't. But all, I mean, all currencies, well, no, all fiat currencies unless they're backed by silver or gold or something, are, are worth what they're worth. I mean, you know... No, but they, there's taxing power. There's, there's taxing power, exactly, once a government is declared to be legal tender, right? But, mm-hmm. but I, I, think that, uh, I, I, think this, I think this is worth exploring seriously instead of just talking about price. But I think your point, though, that, Steve, that you made, that this whole idea of, you know, there's more being put out there, and yet they're worth more. Like, it goes completely mm-hmm. against kind of the laws of supply and demand, I feel like, a little bit. Right. And look, what's changed since I was on here last time that made it worth $2,000 more than when we were talking about last time. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think when you were saying in the beginning that that people have, have even the yeah. Bitcoin believers have right. seen the bubble, mm-hmm. their charts show like, here comes the mania. Steve Gandal and Julie Verhage of Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Radio. So we want to talk a little bit about what's going on around the world uh, and on the other side of the world, if you will. Uh, We've been obviously focusing on North Korea as it fires another missile in the last 24 hours. Matt DeSalvo is Managing Director, Head of U.S. Equities at Mizuho Securities. Uh, They are, by the way, hosting their Global Investor Conference in New York City next week. Matt joining us uh, to talk about the markets and the market view from around the globe right here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. 
Thank you. I, you know, I apologize because we've been like, I've been kind of glued to Twitter. I just feel like the news, fast and furious, uh, if you will. What do you guys focus on? Or how do you kind of, you know, uh, filter out the stuff that maybe you don't think is going to be significant for investors in the investment climate? Well, running the equity business has clearly changed. Uh, and uh, the perspective uh, in my whole career was usually U.S.-Europe accomplished uh accommodated most of what you thought about, and the world is definitely pivoting. Uh, U.S. Asia is becoming more important uh, from news, whether it's uh, North Korea, Bitcoin, or really where we're focused on our day-to-day is um, running, uh, managing uh, relationships with the investors, uh, both here and in Asia. Uh, where do you look for that kind of thing? I mean, what, what shows <clears throat> the most sensitivity? Or oh, let, me ask, let me ask it differently. What shows? What does show the most sensitivity? But maybe ask first: What would you expect to show the most sensitivity, and is it? Well, as, as I said, um, for really the last uh, thirty plus years, U.S. equities have been owned and traded in call it the low to mid eighty percentile of U.S. equities was owned and traded by U.S. entities, including asset managers, hedge funds, and retail. Twelve, thirteen percent was out of Europe, and that classic one or two percent other. We see that shift uh, changing as U.S. Asia becomes more a dominant theme and that the striking change that you'll see over the next uh, 10 to 20 years is an increase in Asian ownership of U.S. equities. By how much? Well, I think... To and what does that mean for the momentum that we've seen in U.S. equities? Well, the, 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 two, the, the answer to the, to the second question is by how, or the first part, by how much I see Asian ownership of U.S. equities uh, over the next three years going to 5% and then over the next decade at least at 10%. And I think it means that uh, research, distribution, companies, how the, their corporate access, when they go travel to meet investors, they usually did called three investor trips in the U.S. and then one to Europe. That's right. what's been done for decades. That they're now going to have to accommodate that shift over to, to to Asia. Some will do it well, and some will will have struggles with with that. What uh, types of uh, you know we're talking equities here? Yes. Uh, okay. So yeah. uh, and and equities. Because do you expect a whole separate class of a kind of equity that's sort of trans-border? I mean, I look at the way Alibaba trades in the U.S., and it's, but it's primarily a Chinese business, very big business, uh, and a very yep. big company. I've got a lot of questions about it, to be frank. But uh, nonetheless, it is, it is, it is a U.S.-traded equity of a Chinese business. Well, um, more, more than – I realize there's other ways to trade it, but that's the, the primary trade. Yeah, uh, U.S. ADRs of Chinese internet names is really the first experience of the U.S. Um, uh, populace seeing the, the, the majority of the liquidity in Chinese internet uh, names is in ADRs here. What I'm actually talking about is the growth of that, but in addition, the ownership of just commonplace U.S. companies. Asian investors buying U.S. companies. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's going to change. So, so the model of 85, 13, 1 or 2 will shift to include Asia. Matt, what does it mean, though, for market momentum? Because I think about, I feel like the financial crisis taught us we're all connected. But I just think about a market cycle where it used to be so much you invest, U.S. investors in U.S. stocks and that you know, would kind of control the momentum and we could kind of keep track of it. But if you have U.S. momentum and then, you know, China can be or Asia can be on a different economic cycle, a different market right. cycle, and then maybe as the U.S. market cycle kind of tails off, they provide some more momentum for U.S. stocks. Is it 
the point that we could kind of get to a place where we just kind of see trend lines in one direction? I think that's... A, Overwhelmingly. That, yes, I, I don't want to be I, the big bull in yeah. the room, but I'm, you know what I'm saying? I think that's a, a tremendous popular... Um, uh, that's a popular um, view that I think, when you think about it, why... What you're talking about now for the next generation uh, of investors, you're now adding the wealth of Japan, the wealth of China, and the wealth of, of greater um, Asia that now historically had never taken any of their discretionary income or their discretionary investment mm-hmm. and put it towards U.S. equities. Well, now China, that's going to change. In China, you couldn't. I think you still can directly, right? Well, there's been um, money Money flows into Hong yeah. Kong right. and then right. it figures its way out, right? right. And that's all, not, as well as Singapore. So you are seeing yeah. China, Japan investing in U.S. equities is a little bit different story than, than uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. Thank yeah. you. Matt DeSalvo. I appreciate it. Managing Director, Head of U.S. Equities at Mizuho Securities. What everybody's saying. Uh, driving, of course, a great concern at the L.A. Auto Show this week, where the entire industry is turning out to look at some of the latest developments from lots of innovative car companies, not least of which Volvo. Tiff Rafik joined us right now. He's the chief digital officer at Volvo. Uh, and and Atik, what is it that you guys are showing off that you've never showed off before uh, at this uh, big LA Auto Show? Well, we're very uh, excited to share today uh, a new way to uh, make it easy for people to get their hands on a Volvo. And uh, that's going to be a subscription service. For, oh, I was thinking you're going to go price for, cuts now. Well, yeah. I mean, the subscription, we think, is a massive simplifier for people uh, who are looking to get their hands on a car in a way that uh, really includes all the things that they're looking for, really. Wait, so why isn't, why isn't that just a, a lease? Easier. What's the difference between a, a quote-unquote subscription and a lease? Well, uh, a lease uh, gets you the car, but there's a lot more to think about when it comes to ownership. So, for example, with a subscription, you have all the ingredients included. That includes tax, insurance, and then service and maintenance, all available for a single flat fee. So it's more inclusive. The other thing is that it's very transparent. We are setting a national price for the car, and so you don't have to negotiate. You know, it's very simple what you're giving and what you're getting in return. Atif, it sounds like almost the model for Apple iPhones. And, the, you know, those are those services that you've got where you can kind of get a new phone every couple of years and replace it. Is that kind of what you guys are going after? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a source of inspiration for us, and it is because consumer behavior is moving that way, where you say that, you know, here is a device. Uh, it could be a phone. Of course, the car is a, now a device on wheels, and you want the latest and greatest. You want it to be current. You don't want to have to think too much, and for a single transparent fee, you can always be current. So in this case, uh, every 24 months, you know, you could get a new Volvo, uh, and in between that, you know that you're going to have a, a, a set of services associated with with uh, having that Volvo that really simplify your life. Wait, so, what, yeah, we do take inspiration from that model. What's going to be the big upgrades? Because, right, with a phone, there's something. There's a cool new screen. There's some new functionality, greater battery powder, power. What's going to be the significant car upgrades that make somebody want to do that? Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, we're premiering this with a car that's brand new. It's called the XC40. It's our first subcompact SUV. It's a great-looking car, so that's one thing. 
the second thing is that there are a set of features with it. Uh, one example of that is the ability to share the car. So you can share it with friends and family. You can do that through the convenience of a phone. And, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, additional digital features and technologies are going to be added uh, over time. And so for that single fee, you're going to get more and more as we invent and innovate. Um, when you look at innovation out there, I mean, uh, where do you see it happening? And, and, and not just with Volvo, but across the industry, where is most innovation happening uh, uh, these days? I mean, your, your title alone, the notion that there's a digital officer for Volvo, says to me that the, that the innovation isn't just happening in the drivetrain. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the innovation is happening in everywhere from how you get the car. Uh, and this is one example, really simple way to get your hands on it and not have to think about all the elements of ownership to what happens once you have the car and, uh, and that experience with the car. So two examples of that would include um, the infotainment system. We are one of the first companies to team up with Google and, and commit to having an embedded version of Android in the car. And what that means in practice is that uh, your car and your phone will actually talk to each other and the information in your car will be just as current as it is on your phone, for example, the map and, and the navigation. Um, so that, 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 that's a really big area of, of uh, innovation. But also everything around that. You know, Volvo was one of the first movers around connected cars. So we have over a million uh, connected cars on the road. And when you think about uh, the fact that those cars are connected, you can do everything from, um, you know, share them with other people without having to be there, to potentially get packages delivered into your trunk without you having to be there, and uh, and, wow. a, and a whole lot more that, that we're working on. So the way the Amazon drivers and his UPS truck ch chasing me down the street in my <laughs> Volvo. <laughs> well, we uh, we're going to be talking more about that uh, in the future on how we can collaborate with with a number of companies. But you know the the basic building blocks are there. So I think we're just at the start of a range of you know connected services that make life more convenient for people. Amazing. Uh, interesting stuff. Interesting to hear the way that you guys are thinking about it because uh, certainly there's a whole life behind the wheel, especially that's in L.A. so cool. All the stuff that's Atik coming Rafik, uh, the uh, chief digital officer uh, at yeah. Volvo, uh, coming to us from Los Angeles where people know a thing or two about sitting behind the wheel. They will be chasing you down, Corey. Yeah, you don't, L.A. You don't have to. You can walk. Just another person chasing you down. You just walk down the side of the street and catch them when I'm trying to drive in L.A., at least on the 405. You listen to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. I come on down, he's on down, he's on down the road. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it isn't a, isn't a Jaguar Land Rover or even a Jaguar or Land Rover. Uh, Joe Eberhard joins us right now, the CEO of Jaguar Land Rover, uh, with a look at uh, what the latest uh, plug-in hybrid uh, uh, options are coming out of the, the car maker uh, from the LA Auto Show. Uh, Joe, glad to have you on. Um, so curious about what you guys are doing and, and, and where you see innovation going uh, with what you're announcing today. Yeah, we're, we're truly excited to bring to market uh, the first plug-in electric hybrid vehicle for the Land Rover brand in both the Range Rover and the Range Rover Sport. Um, it's really an exciting future for us because it's the best combination of really the, uh, the electric powertrain for a 30-mile range, plus then combined with a four-cylinder engine. Wait, so what's, what's the range? Because range is such a big deal with, when it comes to electric. It, 
It is. So the pure electric range in that car will be around 30 miles, but then you have the combination with the inline four-cylinder. It gives you about 400 uh, horsepower, total system power. And uh, with that, you don't have the range anxiety. We do have a full battery electric vehicle that we have in the stand as well, the Jaguar I-Pace, which will uh, launch mid-next year, and that has a range of about 240 miles. Uh, but that that car is, as I said, purely electric. And, and that's shy of the sort of the, the, the dream 300 uh, barrier, which just seems so hard to get to. <laughs> yeah, it is shy for the time being, but I'm sure over the next couple of years, as we see continued advances in battery technology, we will break through that barrier very quickly as well. But I think for now, the 240, 250-mile range is really um, at the top of where the competitors are, and we should be able to, to hopefully um, launch a highly competitive product as, as a result. Joe, how much pressure are you feeling, though, to ramp up when it comes to EVs, electric vehicles? Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's not so much pressure. It is um, the ability for us to offer our customers a multitude of choices in terms of all powertrain technology. We have a clean diesel lineup. We have uh, all new uh, internal combustion engines, four, six, and eight cylinders. And we have now the plug-in hybrid and the full battery electric powertrain. So I don't think it is, you know, one direction that the market will evolve into. It's it is a requirement to just be able to offer everything um, and provide our customers the best choices, really. So where is the demand coming from? I, I, maybe I'm a horrible environmentalist. I don't really, I mean, I don't know. P- putting gas in a car doesn't seem so rough to me. I understand that, you know, we want emissions to go down, and that's certainly happening. We certainly, I live in California most of the time, and, and there's a lot of that, you know, uh, attention to that. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the the highest demand for electric vehicles will be in the coastal states in the beginning, at least in the northeast and certainly on the west coast. Uh, but I do think we shouldn't underestimate the advances that have been made in, in the emissions or lack thereof for internal combustion engines or diesels. I mean, today those powertrains are significantly cleaner than they were just a short couple of years ago. And they do have significant advan- advantages in different respects. I mean, you talked about range, you talked about uh, torque, which on SUVs is incredibly important. So I think it's really all powertrains complement each other and they all fulfill a specific purpose. So so it's, to me, it's not a question either or. It's just having the ability to offer all of them. How important, though, is it what happens with gas prices ultimately down the road? I mean, at this point, we've seen so much uh, in the energy markets and so much available gasoline, which is why we've seen those prices come down. And, and you know, but I'm just curious how much of it is tied to that down the road. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. That has a big impact on consumption patterns and consumer choice. When gas was $5 a couple of years back, uh, the, the, the market changed dramatically and very quickly. Uh, it impacted mostly large SUVs and pickup trucks, and there was a shift back into passenger cars. However, that shift was very short-lived, as we now know, mm-hmm. and memories are not very long, and customers <laughs> jumped right back into big engine V8 pickup trucks and and SUVs. So you're right. At the moment, part of the reason why we don't see a a quicker consumer adaption of electric vehicle is the cost of gas being as low as it is. Um, So I think for a a quicker adaption of electric vehicles and a bigger shift, we would have to see gas prices float up a lot more than where they are at the moment. Yeah, um, uh, and, and finally, it's, it seems that the the performance, of course, for you guys is so important. Whether it's the SUVs or the sportier uh, Jaguar cars, uh, uh, crucial. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have another car here at the show, which is the Jaguar Project 8, uh, fastest Ford production sedan, just at a Nürburgring lab record. It is in our uh, core brand DNA, uh, especially for the Jaguar brand. Uh, performance is paramount for everything we do, but uh, I think you can get performance out of electric vehicles just as much. And, uh, you know, it's just a different interpretation of what a performance car can be. We uh, just announced the world's first uh, production vehicle, right. uh, electric production vehicle race series, the mm. iTrophy. We're, we're very proud to have Bobby Rahal, uh, uh, Rahal Letterman. Ray Joe, we got we got to jump. But uh, Joe Eberhardt, CEO of uh, Jaguar Land Rover, great stuff. We appreciate it. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for a look at some of the Movers and Shakers on this Wednesday afternoon. Carol Masser, along with my partner in crime, Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off with the S&P crime. 500. <laughs> okay, what just, am I missing out on? Just partner. No crime. We don't do any kind of crime here. Sure. I might you know, swipe, swipe an extra snack upstairs, but, but they're free, so it's not really a crime. Hey, uh, S&P 500, 314 names in the index higher today, 189 lower, two unchanged. Check out all the retailers among uh, the biggest gainers in the S&P, Target, Macy's, Nordstrom, Target up almost 9%, Macy's up more than 8%, and Nordstrom up about 7.3%. Our story on the uh, terminal, the Bloomberg Apparel and Specialty Retail Index is higher for a third straight day as data continues to roll in, suggesting holiday sales may bring joy joy to stores. Uh, the S&P 1500 Apparel Retail Index soaring as much as 3.3%, highest intraday since May 12th. Um, available sales data suggesting November year-over-year sales growth may have improved sequentially in both online and brick-and-mortar channels, according to Goldman's uh, chief economist, Jan Hatzius. He put out a note. So, strong confidence, pretty good stuff. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Corey, and so Target. Nordstrom, Macy's, among the biggest gainers today in the S&P. I'm looking at shares of Autodesk. It's our neighbor. It's actually right across the street uh, from our Bloomberg Bureau in San Francisco ah. at uh, One Market Street. Uh, a very interesting company going through a tumultuous time. Some activist shareholders got involved. Uh, CEO uh, Carl Bass, uh, no longer CEO, uh, uh, fought them but worked with them eventually. Uh, he left the company. They, they had some seats on the board. They left the, the, the board seats, and the stock was went straight up this year. Until today, stock's down 15.9%. Uh, we'll call that a 16% one-day decline, one point down more than wow. 17%. Uh, this is after earnings came out yesterday, and the company uh, talking about they're shifting customers. It's, it's very interesting, and it's relevant in the way that lots of companies are shifting sort of to the cloud. Autodesk was very early in this. But they're trying to shift companies who pay a regular maintenance fee to be fully in subscription, uh, uh, pay a full subscription cost, not just buy some software and pay, pay maintenance, kind of a blended cloud approach. And that uh, program they called uh, M2S, 
maintenance a subscription, uh, hit a road bump uh, and a speed bump, if you will. And uh, they said they added fewer net subscribers than, than they had expected and fewer than Wall Street had expected. They lowered the guidance for uh, fiscal year 2018 uh, after the market closed yesterday. And uh, the model shift is just seems to be confusing Wall Street. A number of mm-hmm. analysts uh, went ahead and lowered their targets. They said their 2020 targets are intact, but the current year coming down, uh, a lot of uh, bullish analysts are sort of uh, sheepishly lowering estimates and saying, well, if you liked it yesterday at, uh, at uh, 120, you, you know, you'll love it today at or 130. You'll love it today at, uh, at, at 109. The stock closed at 109.34. They also announced a lot of layoffs, uh, more mm-hmm. than 1,100 people. Um, I've yet to hear from I don't know who worked there, so I'm hoping that they survived this. But uh, yeah. big changes for this S&P 500 application software company. Just quickly want to mention uh, shares of Chipotle Mexican Grill up 5.6% after a 4% gain uh, yesterday. 301.99 a share is our close. Chipotle Mexican Grill rallying after founder Steve Ells agreed to step down as chief executive officer, really clearing the way for a new leader with the operational expertise needed to pull the burrito chain out of a two-year slump. This has been Ells' baby. He founded the company back in 93, but again, uh, trying to deal with coming back from uh, various uh, problems and scandals, dealing with uh, an E. coli breakout and so on and so forth. So anyway, investors are a little bit more enthused about Chipotle. Uh, stock is uh, still down about 20% so far this year. All right, let's get to the volatility index, if I may, on may. this Wednesday. <laughs> Thank you so much. Permission granted. Uh, the volatility index brought to you by SIBO, VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with SIBO, VIX Options and Futures, C Disclosures, and learn more at cboe.com slash Powerful Outcomes VIX. And the VIX, check it out, everybody, uh, up 6.4%, closing at 10.66. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! David Wilson back with us. We missed his chart of the day song. So sad about that. We do have a stock of the day right now. David, what do you got? Well, you know, you can't have everything, Corey, but we can still talk about the chart after all. And uh, considering what's been going on in the world of Bitcoin, that's what it focuses on, something I mentioned earlier. What it does is look at the uh, Bitcoin Investment Trust, which is a way for equity investors uh, to place their bets, so to speak, on the digital currency. The ticker on this one is GBTC. And what's interesting is that if you look at the last couple months, it's really struggled to keep up with the gains that we have been seeing in Bitcoin. Uh, In fact, at one point, it was behind. If you measure from May 2015, when this uh, trust shares uh, were first listed over the counter on the OTCQX market, Uh, You saw it was behind by almost 1,200 percentage points at one point this month. Now, this week, it sort of narrowed that gap because uh, the Bitcoin Investment Trust has been up 45.5%. Nonetheless, it's still uh, trailing by a good 385 points. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. i get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Now, let me briefly mention stock of the day, Westco Aircraft Holdings. They're a supplier to plane makers and other companies. Tickers WAIR. Stock uh, went public in 2011, fell below the $15 share initial price in February. 
and it's had nothing but disappointing results this fiscal year. Late yesterday, the fourth quarter results came out. They were more of the same profit trail, the average estimate, by 50%. And so West Coast shares fell to a new low. They were down as much as 21.5% today, closed with a loss of 5.8%. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays, 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 